Thanks for joining Health Affairs this week. I'm Vabron Watts. And I'm Jessica Bylander. As you all know, this is the weekly podcast where we talk about the health policy news or the goings on at Health Affairs of the Week. Well, if you are hearing my voice, you know what that means. <laughs> we will be focusing on health equity related topics. And Jess, this month has been, uh, well, I'm sorry, we are in a new month now because it's November 1st, but last month was a busy month for us as it relates to health equity topics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now that we're in November, it's kind of hard to believe so much happened in October. We released our October theme issue on tackling structural racism in health. And it was such an incredible issue, such an honor to work on it. There were so many, um, there's so much content and so many events outside of the issue that were just so interesting and, and informative. Um, babe, and I know you tuned in to our professional development event toward the end of the month and really enjoyed it. Oh, yes. I truly enjoyed the professional development event, e- event and it was focused more on the narrative matters, um, really talking uh, about structural racism and how that plays out. And, you know, when we think of structural racism, what, what I thought was interesting about this event is that it was structural racism that was actually, I would say, put upon by academic researchers. And so it was just interesting to get that, even though, you know, you are decorated in various degrees, is that we are all subject to structural racism, whether you have a PhD, an MD, or whatever, you know, we are subjected to to structural racism. And you had some very interesting academic researchers come in and talk about their experience with structural racism from, you know, being called like having the police called on them while they're at the dental office, just just getting just basic healthcare services. And then also you took it from the um, aspect someone talked about their experience as a Black woman living in rural Texas, um, you know, giving birth. It was just really interesting. Yeah. So we had our two Narrative Matters authors talking about their personal experiences. And yeah, it was it was a very different event. It was sort of felt less sort of your traditional slideshow presentation and discussion, which are, of course, very valuable, but it was a really real discussion. It was just kind of, you know, um, this is what happened to me and a really unbelievable experiences. So we had Miranda Ward of George Washington University. She started us off talking about her story of going to the dentist for a crown procedure and ultimately having the police called on her. Um, and, you know, she talked about how calling the police on someone who's not posing a threat is anti-Black. And and also, on the other hand, the lack of adequate dental care and insurance in this country is a structural problem that manifests particularly for people of color. Um, then we had Alexis Grant Panting of Texas Women's University talking about, you know, preparing to birth her second child in Texas during the pandemic. And she just faced so many indignities and actual medical dangers throughout the process. Um, So she talked about a slew of issues from the lack of Black providers in her area that were covered by her insurance, Um, repeated indignities like her husband being referred to as her boyfriend instead of her husband, despite corrections. Um, And then, you know, just the lack of body autonomy and control over her body and her choices during this process, as well as, you know, failure to document certain things like her her pregnancy when she was getting a CT scan, which can be very dangerous. You know, you want those extra protections for the fetus. So the list goes on. But um, 
something that really stood out for me from the Q&A was someone asked, you know, what what do you think you would do differently next time? The authors kept it really real. They're they're like, it's not, the onus should not, I should not have had to exactly. do anything differently. <laughs> the onus should not be on individuals who are facing racism and discrimination to change their behavior so they have a better outcome. You know, it's the onus is really on the others and on the system to change so that these types of things don't come up in the first place. So, um, so yeah, I think, yeah, I know the video is up on our website, so definitely check it out. Yes, I, I did share it with some friends and some friends watched it and they were like, oh my goodness, this is amazing just to hear these stories. And, uh, and Jess, you know, I know you are, are over, you oversee Narrative Matters. And I would just like to say that I always appreciate Narrative Matters just to get those like real life experiences and to have, and to put it within the journal Particularly, you know, when you cover things that are in the context of like health equity, I think it really drives the story home of what people are facing within healthcare. Yeah, putting a face to those health policy debates is so important. Um, and I know last week was a big week for you as well and the health equity team, equity team, babe. Um, yeah. So for the first time, we held a one day publishing course for health equity scholars. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So we did hold a publishing course, which Initially was uh, for our health equity fellows here at Health Affairs, but um, some other organizations got wind what we were doing with our fellows and, and they asked, you know, may our fellows join? So we did have RWJF Scholars for Action come and join. And, you know, this felt this publishing course was really about the inner workings of a journal. And I will say, like, we came up with this publishing course, I would say, I came up with this publishing course because there were it's it's really not that that much communications between I, I would say the journal and this is of, of any journal people who work in the journal um, enterprise and people who are actually submitting into the journal besides like when they submit and so it was just really interesting just um, listening to what people in the field think um, about uh, journals um, it was also interesting to uh, look at the faces as uh, as these researchers are surprised what goes on in, in, into journal and how different a paper looks from being submitted <laughs> to actually being published, which I thought was uh, very interesting. And, um, you know, sometimes I think that uh, journals we have looked at, and, and I know this because this is what I used to think, um, <laughs> journals are looked at as the uh, pretty much just a bad guy because we do have to critique you know, in order for it to be published. But, you know, but once you look at the, your first submission down to when it's published, you do re really realize if you have like some great research, the journals really do have your back in making sure that it is conveyed and presented um, well when it reaches the public. Yeah, I so enjoyed being a part of that and, and sort of breaking down our internal processes at Health Affairs and what we're looking for. Um, you know, it's, this is information we want people to know. So, Having a chance to present it um, kind of face-to-face -face and answer questions, I think, is so invaluable. And yeah, for the first time, we we did a kind of comparison between the submitted version and the final version. And, and you know, just letting people know, like, we're, we're trying to make the work better and and clearer and um, and kind of breaking down that process for folks. So, so it was just like a little bit more, um, less of a black box, I guess. So um, I hope we were able to do something like that in the future as well for others, because I think... I hope they came away from it learning a lot. Oh, yes. I, I would say thus far, the feedback has been great. So thank you for everyone who was um, involved with that.
Yeah. So in the spirit of a very busy October, babe, I know you also came out with your health equity newsletter. So those newsletters are part of the Health Affairs Insiders Program. Um, So you'll receive those if you're a member. Um, You were talking about a really interesting topic that you'd recently um, been reading about, um, about how Medicare and Medicaid were used as weapons against the segregation of U.S. hospitals. So what kind of inspired you to write that newsletter? So, so, so interesting. So the 1619 Project um, inspired me to write about that because prior to that, I had no clue how Medicare, Medicaid actually served to desegregate hospitals. And just to give you like a brief background, in 1964, we did have a civil rights movement, which did make it illegal to separate, discriminate by race, gender and, a, and, and other demographics. So hospitals were segregated in 1965 still down south and even some up north. And so what happened when the Medicare Medicaid Act was passed in 1965, it pretty much single-handedly desegregated hospitals, as the story says, within four months. Now, when I read that, I was like, oh my goodness, this is huge. And, you know, even though we still have, you know, structural racism that is within health healthcare, this to me, was the beginning of like addressing that. We have a long way to go, but at least we are moving towards that. And and at least we are having topics like issues that that, like last month, topics where we can talk about these uh, different uh, discriminatory practices and racism within healthcare. Yeah. And I thank you for for putting that out there. I remember learning about that in grad school. um, um, But I do think it's it's kind of an un less well understood aspect of of um the civil rights movement and of um and of the medicare creation of medicare and medicaid. So yeah, so I think just to wrap up with this health equity corner that I'm pleased to join you on, um we wanted to definitely be sure to celebrate Native American Heritage Month um um also known um as American Indian and Alaska Native Heritage Month. Um we've we've published a a fair amount of content on um, this important population, including an, a paper in our October issue um, that include a number of um, American Indian um, and Native authors that talked about sort of um, how funding mechanisms perpetuate vicious cycles, basically, of of community organization. Yeah, community organizations for um, Indigenous health needs not being able to support themselves or grow or be sustainable because, um, you know, they end up in these cycles of competing for small grants that don't support their infrastructure and they're not able to grow. And then they have to partner with white-led institutions. So a great paper and great to have um, to have Indigenous authors on that. Um, I know there was that recent um, Research Injustice for All article on Forefront from Indigenous Impact. So it was it was pretty much talking about the same thing that you're talking about. Um, it, what They focus more on the private sector opportunities to foster American, Indian, Alaska Native health equity. And so it was, it was just very interesting. And, you know, even though they said that, you know, pouring money into the community is very important. I mean, we do live in a, a society based on capitalism. But however, in order to be effective, you must employ those from a community, but also bring those from a community to the table so that you can talk with them and not to them to really make huge impact. So if you get a chance, please read that article 
from Kurt Berkus, who's over Indigenous Impact, where he really talked about steps and ways to really increase opportunities to foster American Indian and Indigenous health. Great. And that seems like a great place to wrap up. Um, Folks, if you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend or leave us a review. Um, And thanks, babe. Thank you so much. And also be sure to check out the October issue, Tackling Structural Racism in Health, and check out the CVS Health Sponsored Series, Research and Justice for All. You will enjoy and share with a friend.